Good morning. How are we doing this morning? You know what next week is? Palm Sunday, that's right. It is going to be an incredibly special service. You're going to have to come back, and I'm telling you, it's going to be different. It's going to be very different than what you're used to, but you need to come. It's going to be awesome because next Sunday kicks off the most incredible week in all of history that we celebrate, right? You've got to be here for Palm Sunday. All right, today is our third week in our Journey to the Cross message series. And this series is specifically designed to prepare us for Easter. As we study what Jesus said and what he did that led to the greatest act in all of history. We open this series by studying the mission of Jesus. His mission of coming to this earth to die on the cross for our sins, it is the foundation for our mission. Our mission is what he has assigned to everyone who professes Jesus as their Savior. And that mission is called the Great Commission. It's all about making disciples, helping people get saved from their sins, and then helping them grow to full maturity as believers in Jesus who become fully devoted, faithful followers of Jesus. And Jesus didn't leave us alone to accomplish this mission. He sent us his Holy Spirit to help us. So it's not a solo mission. It's a co-mission where we cooperate with the Holy Spirit as we execute this mission. And when we obey this mission, we bring glory to God. Last week, we talked about the miracles of Jesus. Jesus performed miracles for three primary reasons, we said. First was to prove that he was and is who he said he was. So it was all about proving his authenticity. Second was to prove his authority. And then lastly, the third one was so that we would believe. Jesus' miracles were simply the evidence. They were the proof to validate all that he said. His miracles were often tailor-made to build people's faith. His word makes it clear that if we have real, genuine faith, even the size of a mustard seed, that trust in God alone, it can make the impossible become possible. But many of us often doubt. And some of us may even question if miracles like what happened in the Bible can still happen today. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He doesn't change. So if he did miracles then, he can certainly do miracles today. The real question is, do we really believe? Amen. We must always remember that miracles are according to his will, in his time, and in his way. Our focus shouldn't be on pursuing miracles in and of themselves. Our focus should be on pursuing him. And when we pursue him, it can often result in miracles because that's in his nature. That's who he is. But we must be careful in our pursuit because if we slip into pursuing miracles more than we pursue Jesus, then we could open ourselves up to deception. Jesus accomplished his mission on the cross. And it was the greatest miracle of all because it made a way for us all to be saved and spend eternity with him. There was no other way. 
And while this way is made possible by God's grace, none of us, none of us can go that way without faith. So, do you really believe? Do you really believe? That was the question last week. Now, we began our Journey to the Cross message series with the mission of Jesus. Then we talked about the miracles of Jesus. And today we're going to talk about the message of Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 14 through 15 today. You don't have a Bible? We've got plenty of them here on the bookshelf. You can follow along up on the screen or on your mobile device, whatever you choose. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, it says, Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This text represents the central message of Jesus during his ministry here on this earth. And for many of you, what I'm going to share today, it may be stuff that you've already heard. But in keeping with our mission, as given by Jesus in the Great Commission, you and I have a responsibility not to just know this, but we're to share it. We're to teach others so that we make disciples. It's a tremendous responsibility that none of us should ever take for granted because it has eternal consequences. Now, the word gospel, in its most basic definition, it means good news. But before we can truly understand and appreciate the good news, we first have to understand what's the bad news. The bad news is is that our entire world is corrupted by sin. And it's sin that separates us from a holy God. And the punishment for sin is spiritual death, which leads to eternal separation from God in hell forever. Yes, hell is real. And yes, unfortunately, there will be many who end up there. The Bible describes hell as an eternal fire that is unquenchable, where there is shame and everlasting contempt, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there is everlasting destruction, and where the smoke of those tormented rises forever and ever. It's not a place that any one of us would ever want to go. But it is the destination for anyone who does not obey the good news. Unfortunately, there continues to be more and more doctrines of demons infiltrating our churches today. Because deception is growing and more and more people would rather have their ears tickled than to hear the truth. One of those doctrines of demons claims that everyone will end up in heaven. It's called universalism. And that sure sounds nice, doesn't it? That sounds pretty cozy and convenient, but it's completely false. The Bible does not teach such a heresy. The Bible teaches that every person has an eternal destination, either eternally separated by God, by sin, excuse me, and you'll be put in hell, or you'll be eternally united with God through forgiveness and salvation in heaven. That's the truth. And no matter how cozy it sounds of what you're hearing out today, that is the truth. There's only two destinations. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9 through 9 makes it clear that not everyone will end up in heaven. 
It says here, And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. If we don't know God or we don't obey the good news, there will be eternal destruction, eternal punishment, and separation from God. That's the bad news. Now, let me tell you about the good news. God made a way for us to know him. He made a way for us to know him. And that way is through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the full revelation of God in the flesh. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Everything about God that you need to know, you can know by knowing Jesus. So to know God, we have to know Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the exclusive way to the Father. He is also the only way to know the truth because he is the truth. If you know Jesus, then you know the truth. And if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When you choose his way based on his truth, you will receive his eternal life. You cannot make your own way or come on your own terms based on your own efforts. Jesus is God's only solution for our sin problem. God saw how utterly helpless we were in our sins. That was the bad news. But the good news is that God sent his one and only son to this earth. He was born into this world for one primary purpose, and that was to save us from our sins. And it was through his death on the cross that he made a way for us to be forgiven, to be saved, and to spend eternity with him. The word gospel means good news. Now let's go a bit deeper. What specifically is the good news? Well, in a nutshell, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel, and that's the good news. Now, let's look at it in Scripture. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. He says, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news. Now, in King James, or the New King James, it would render good news as the word gospel. Often they use those words interchangeably. So let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Let me pause. You see this here in verse 2? It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe. That is a conditional statement. We just talked about this a few weeks ago when we were teaching on John chapter 15. We were talking about Jesus' last I am statement. I am the true vine. 
In John chapter 15, he said 12 times in 17 verses to remain in me. He used that word remain that many times. Now, in other translations, was you the word abide. So abide, remain, they're used interchangeably. But the whole point is, we have to remain in Jesus. We have to continue to believe. That is the only condition for going to heaven, belief. That's what separates believers from unbelievers. The only distinction the Bible makes. There's not this thing that you guys hear about, or I've heard about this whole thing with carnal Christians. There's no such thing. Believer, unbeliever. The only distinction the Bible makes. Amen. Now, in case I could keep preaching, I'm just going to keep going here in verse 3. And I'm going to tell you guys, do you know how awesome it is that I have this iPad up here that I can see what you guys see without having to turn my head and make sure it's there? It's the little things like this that make all the difference. We just had a board meeting, and I asked the board for permission to do this. And I'm telling you, praise the Lord. I love it. I don't have to look behind me anymore. All right, so verse 3, keep going here. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. So the gospel is the good news, and the good news is all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what really makes the good news good. Are you ready? Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Or Greek, excuse me. It is the power of God. If you've got your hand out, it is the power of God. We can never, ever underestimate God's power. And Paul is telling us that the gospel itself is the power that saves. When you and I are witnessing to other people, we don't have to worry about where we get the power from. The power is in the gospel itself. That's where the saving power is. It's not in our strength. It's not in whatever flowery words we try to come up with. No, it's in the gospel. Just share the gospel and leave the saving to Jesus. Our role is to share, and his role is to do the saving. Always remember that. And here is also what makes the good news good. Everyone has the opportunity to be saved. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That's not just good news. That is great news. And it brings hope to the hopeless. It brings freedom to those who are held hostage by sin. But it is a personal and individual decision. Notice what Paul said. He says here, first for the Jew and also for the Greek. He could have put this in a plural sense and said, first for the Jews and then for the Greeks. But he didn't. He chose to keep this in a singular form. And that's because salvation is a personal and individual decision. Being part of the Jewish people or the Greek people or being an American or being part of any particular group will not get you saved. You must personally believe in Jesus. Paul's emphasis in this text is on everyone. It is a universal offer of the gospel. It doesn't matter whether the person is a religious Jew or whether they're a pagan Greek. 
No one is excluded from this offer. The good news is good for anyone and everyone who believes. John the Baptist gave a very stern warning to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who saw themselves saved because they were part of a particular elite group because they were descendants of Abraham. Watch this. Here's what he said to them in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptized, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he explained. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from those very stones. I love the word of God, don't you guys? Woo! John the Baptist made the same, Paul, the same point that Paul made in Romans chapter 1. Being part of any particular group will not save you. The gospel is all about making a personal and individual decision to believe in Jesus. So now let's move on in our text in Mark chapter 1, uh, Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, where Jesus gave us his central message that summed up his entire ministry. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now we've talked about what the gospel is. It's the good news. It's all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now let's touch on what is the kingdom of God. The Jews believed the kingdom of God would be a physical kingdom and that it would have boundaries and that it would overthrow the Roman oppression that they were under. But the kingdom of God wasn't at all like what they thought. The kingdom of God, as Jesus taught, it represented two things. It represented both a spiritual kingdom to rule in the hearts of all those who would believe, and then it was also about the coming kingdom in the future when Jesus would return to this earth and rule forever. Daniel speaks of this coming kingdom. He does it in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 7. He talks about how it will crush all earthly kingdoms and will last forever. But I don't want us to focus on that one. I don't want us to focus on the future kingdom. We need to focus on the kingdom of God, the one that Jesus was really talking about in his ministry. He says here in this text, the kingdom of God is at hand. Other translations would say, the kingdom of God is near. What he meant was that the kingdom of God that the Jews and everyone else had been waiting for was now here. The kingdom of God was Jesus himself. He was the promised Messiah who would bring salvation to all who would believe in him. We can see this more clearly in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verses 20 and 21. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? Jesus replied, The kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, Here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. When Jesus said the kingdom of God cannot be detected by visible signs, he meant you cannot see it with your natural eyes. No one can see the kingdom of God with their natural eyes. We can only see the kingdom of God by being spiritually reborn 
which is exactly what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3. You guys getting hot in here? Can someone turn the air down over there? It's really easy to do. Anthony, brother, can you help me out? It's right above that sign, pray. I'm sorry, I forgot to do that before service because it's still set on heat. I'm watching your eyes, you guys. I can see it. We'll get that air going. All right, so we're talking about being spiritually reborn. This is what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to say that not only can we not see the kingdom of God unless we're born again, we can't ever enter it either without being born again. So we can't see or enter the kingdom of God without being born again. Now, being born again is going from spiritual death and being dead in our sins to going to spiritual life through repentance and faith in Jesus. It's a complete work of the Holy Spirit. We must be born again. When we make the personal and individual decision to accept the gift of salvation by God's grace through our faith, we are born again. The debt owed for all of our sins is paid in full by the blood of Jesus who sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So when we're born again, we become brand new. And we can now see and enter the kingdom of God. Now let's go a bit deeper. How do we actually become born again? That's the question. How does this happen? Jesus uses two words in the main message he came to preach to everyone. Repent and believe. It's right here in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent is what John the Baptist preached to prepare the way for the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus began his public ministry with this same word, repent. To repent, it means to change one's mind. And this change also corresponds to a change of direction or a change of behavior. Now, being sorry or even feeling sorry is not repentance. You've got your hand out. That's another blank. Being sorry or even feeling sorry is not repentance. You and I can be sorry about something emotionally, but that doesn't necessarily change our ways. Paul distinguishes being sorry from repenting in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9-10, through 10, where he says this, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Being sorry may be the beginning, but if it does not lead to changing our mind, which ultimately leads to changing our direction, then it is not true repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death, while godly sorrow leads us to repent, ultimately leading to life. A great example of this is Judas. 
Judas felt great remorse for betraying Jesus, but he did not repent. Instead, he went out and killed himself. True repentance is agreeing with God about our sin and then being willing to turn from our sin to follow the new direction that God is leading us to. When we experience true biblical repentance, we we recognize that we are completely helpless to save ourselves. Our only option becomes turning from our sin and turning to the only one who can forgive our sin, Jesus. So to repent, we not only need to agree that what we were doing was wrong, we need to ask ourselves, what do I need to do differently? And then we need to go do it. John the Baptist said, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. So if there's not a change of mind followed by a change of direction which leads to a change of behavior, then we have not truly repented. That's what it all comes down to because true repentance leads us to turn from our sins and turn to God. Now the second word that Jesus emphasized in his message was to believe. Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. To believe is to accept as true. It's to trust in. It's to be completely convinced and to have full dependence upon. The kind of belief that Jesus is calling us into here in this text is more than just simple intellectual acceptance. It's more than that. It's more than just head knowledge. The kind of belief that Jesus is calling us into, right? It goes from our head and it reaches down into our heart and it leads us to action. Because if it doesn't do that, it's worthless and it will not save us. To believe is actually to have faith in action. It's one thing to believe something intellectually. But if our actions don't follow what we say we believe, then there really isn't any true saving faith. James says this in James chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. He says, You say you have faith, for you believe that there's one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? He's making a distinction on the kind of belief that you and I must have. If our faith is simply believing something to be true, that doesn't lead us into action, then it is a debt faith, and it will not save us. Even demons believe in God, but the difference with their belief is they don't obey. True saving faith is belief that obeys. You can put that in your handout. True saving faith is belief that obeys. Now let me be very clear. Our obedience is not the means to our salvation, but it is the evidence of our salvation. You follow me? It's not the means to our salvation, but it is the evidence of our salvation. In other words, our obedience is the proof that our belief is genuine. And that's the kind of belief Jesus is looking for because that's the only kind of belief that will save us. Our salvation is based on the complete work of Jesus through his death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, and his resurrection on the third day. That's the gospel, and that is the power of God that can save us. Now, there is no such thing as a works-based salvation. 
Lots of doctrines and demons out there today on that one. All about trying to earn your way to heaven or I got to be a good person. That is all false. We cannot earn our way to heaven no matter how hard we try. It is Jesus plus nothing that saves us. He said, repent and believe in the gospel. Once we change our mind and we leave our sins behind through repentance, we then turn to God and we believe. And the kind of belief that will save us is one that goes from our head, accepting the gospel is true, down to our heart that actually leads to action. We have got to stop making excuses for the lack of obedience. I've heard all kinds of excuses. I've made them myself. You get talking to somebody and they're like, oh man, you're just preaching works, aren't you? You're just preaching all about works and obedience. Are you kidding me? We've got to all read our Bible. Because it is all about obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? Obey me. Hello? (laughs) That's like showing whether we love him or not. Look, I'm in this too, man. I am in this with you. It is all about obeying. We can't profess our love for Jesus when we won't submit to what he teaches. Profession without submission means nothing. Are we obeying God's word? Are we acting on what we hear from his word? If not, then we really need to evaluate just what kind of belief do we think we have. Because if we want to know that we know Jesus... If you want to have a gut check on what a relationship with Jesus actually is and what's it like or what it should be like, then let's study 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, where John says here, This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a what? Liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we're in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. You want to know that you know Jesus? Then check your obedience. Are you keeping his commands? Now, I need to say this again. Our obedience is not what saves us. It's only by His grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. Period. But our obedience is the evidence of our being saved. And let me also clarify what is meant by the word keep here that John uses when he says this. This is how we know that we know Him. If we keep His commands. Our obedience is not about perfection. It is about direction. John chapter 17, verse 6. Jesus is praying to his father about his disciples. And he says this, I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. This is really important. They, meaning the disciples, have kept your word. Really? These guys? These are the guys who at the Last Supper were arguing about which one of them would be the greatest. Later that night, each one of them would abandon Jesus. And Peter denied Jesus even after Jesus warned him that he would do it three times before the rooster crowed. Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus knew all this. And he still says here that they kept God's word. So what is the deal with that? It's because Jesus wasn't looking at perfection. 
He was looking at the overall direction of their lives. And thank goodness, because we all make mistakes, don't we? Praise the Lord that His mercies are new every morning. So our overall direction in life, that's what matters. And that direction should always be to striving to walk as Jesus walked. The central message that Jesus came to this earth to preach is good news. God didn't just shout his love for us from heaven. No, he showed us his love. He showed it by leaving his place in heaven and being born into this world as a man. And that man was Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah who would save the world from their sins. He faced all of the same challenges in this life that we do, yet he never sinned. He lived a perfect and sinless life. Philippians chapter 2 says this, beginning in verse 6. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Oh, there's that word again, obedience. He gave us the perfect example. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Woo, I can't wait to see that happen. I can't wait. There is no greater name in all the world than Jesus. And it's the only name by which we can be saved. When we declare Jesus as Lord of our life, we bring glory to God. Jesus is God's only solution for our sin problem. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is now. Today is the day of salvation. We must all repent and believe in the gospel. That is the message of our blessed Savior right there. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and three days later, he conquered death, hell, and sin through his resurrection. That's the good news. Now, how does he want us to respond to this good news? He said, repent and believe. To repent is to change our mind so that we'll then change our direction. To believe is to put our faith completely in Jesus and then follow him with our actions. True saving faith is belief that obeys. And always remember, it's never about perfection. It's all about direction. And that direction should lead us to be fully devoted, faithful followers of Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. Do you know him? Do you know him today? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a song here in just a minute. And if you're here today and you're questioning whether you actually know Jesus or not, and you want to be sure that you know him, or maybe you've gotten away from him, but you're ready to come back, and you want, to, you want me to pray for you, then I'm just going to ask you to come forward during this song, and I'll pray for you. Others of us, as we listen to this song, here's what I want you to do. We're going to take communion together after the song is over. But while the song is being played... I want you to examine your hearts. All right, Scripture tells us that um, if we're going to take communion, we really have got to examine ourselves. 
This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. It says, So then, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Now let me pause. None of us are worthy, right? We are all sinners, potentially saved by grace if we've made that decision to follow him. This is serious, that what we're going to do. This is sacred. That's why I'm saying I'm giving an invitation during the song that if you've not committed your life to Christ and you'd like to make that commitment today, I want to encourage you to come forward and I'll pray with you and we can do that. Then you can take communion after that because you don't want to take communion if you've got something between you and God that needs dealing with that you need to repent about. This is not something we just do to meet a ritual just to complete. This is serious stuff. That's what the warning is here in Scripture. Then it says in verse 28, Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's pretty serious. So we need to examine ourselves. What I want you to do is just think through as you're listening to this song. Examine yourself. Where are you in your relationship with Christ? How is your obedience? Is there something that you need to repent about today? Is there a sin that you're caught up in that you need to be set free from today? Listen, Jesus is in the saving business, man. He will set you free from that. Don't hold on to your pride and try to hold on to that stuff. We've got to deal with it in our heart. Repent and believe. Amen? Amen. So I want this time to be a a sacred time. As I play this song, um, Jenna, can you get the lights in the back? I want you to just get alone with God as this song's going on and just pray to Him and ask Him to search your heart. And if there's something that needs dealt with, may He bring it to the surface that you can deal with it. All right? During this song, I'll be right here. If you want to come forward and pray, I'll pray with you. After the song, the ushers will come and we'll partake of communion together. Sound good? Okay. I see a shatter You see hope I see a broken But you see beautiful Beating inside my chest 